The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre post yet still very racial America. You could say all that or you can just call the show about race. I'm Raquel Cepeda and here with me in the Palantley Studios in New York is my co-discussant Tanner Colby. Hello. What up Tanner? Hello. And as you may have heard, our regular co-discussant Baratunde Thurston has landed an amazing new gig as supervising producer and content boss overseeing the creation and production of original digital content for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. A big shout out to, and congrats to Baratv Tunde. Don't fret, kind people. Baratunde will not be leaving us, but he will be taking a few weeks off to settle into his new gig. So we have two very special guests this week. Before we introduce our first guest, we wanted to extend a virtual high five to The Guardian's Melissa Locker for featuring us, show about race, a podcast that espouses the kind of civil discourse that's actually fruitful and informative instead of simply argumentative in her latest Listen to This column. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Anna Sale from WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money to discuss her recent series on the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. But now, without further ado, here to discuss her recent and amazing This American Life program, The Problem We All Live With, Part 1, about school integration, is New York Times Magazine investigative reporter and... National Association of Black Journalists 2015 Journalist of the Year, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Welcome. That was a good introduction. I, I need you it. in my life. That was awesome. Thank you. And I meant it. But first off, I want to ask how everybody is. What's up with you, Nicole? Just getting over a summer cold, working, you know, waiting for school to start. Working on anything special that you can share with us? I'm working on something special that I will not share. Ah, uh-huh. stingy. As I told Tanner earlier, I'm sticking with uh, school segregation, so there will be more upcoming work on that. I was looking through your website, NicoleHannahJones.com, and I saw there were two books, e-books, that we can download and uh, support your work and read about it and be civilized by it. <laughs> um, what are the names of the books we can download? Uh, the first one is Living Apart, How the Government Betrayed a Landmark Civil Rights Law. It's about a 40-year failure to enforce the Fair Housing Act. The other one is Ghost of Greenwood, which came out last year during the commemoration of Freedom Summer. And I go visit my dad's hometown of Greenwood, Mississippi for the first time. So what's up with you, Tanner? I am working. I got an office, which is very exciting, <laughs> um, so that I can work. It's doubled my productivity. I've worked at home for 10 years, one week in an office, and I've got a whole lot more done. So I, I'm converted. But no, other than that, things are good. Wow, that's really cool. Where's your office? It's just it's a writing space in the Gowanus by the Whole Foods with all the gentrification. It's real good. Hope you feel good about yourself every time you walk. Well, you <laughs> know. the train to... They have uh, great produce. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's what's going on with me. New office. Well, I had a really great weekend. I tried to spark an inc- a racial incident, but... Yeah, it was well, a big fail. You can't always get one going. But um, I did have a great time at the Commodore Park in Brooklyn. I went to Afropunk Fest and, and really enjoyed watching. Did you, did you go, Nicole? I didn't go this year. Grace Jones was, she was like a goddess contained in like human form. 
So I saw on Facebook. Yeah. It was a lot just, of my friends went. It was just such a wonderful. Uh, it was just such an amazing and powerful, energetic performance. She's sixty-seven years old. She wore like a corset and a thong, <laughs> and her body was you would expect nothing tight. Less. I mean, yeah. she looked tight. And actually, she sang. She closed the show on both nights. I went on Friday and Saturday with "Slave to the Rhythm," which is one of her most popular hits. Mm-hmm. Hula hooping, and she was hula hooping on like this podium. She came down from the podium hula hooping introduced her band hula hooping and then walked off stage wow. and i was like drop the mic the other fun thing was um sasha my husband and i we both started our careers as music journalists and between us we've inter- you know we have like maybe 40 45 years of um you know interviewing people like you know kid rock sting santana etc cetera, etc cetera, all the rappers and we had a really good time because the first this is the first time that uh, afropunk asked us to interview people together we, we interviewed Gary Clark Jr. and one of AC's favorite bands, Suicidal Tendencies, a hardcore band that started in Venice in 1981. So that was fun. That was a lot of fun. But um, I'm happy to be back and um, happy to have Nicole Hannah-Jones. So let's get into this. All right. So This American Life recently aired a two-part series on school integration called The Problem We All Live With. If you haven't heard it yet, you should. Links will be in our show notes. You should definitely check it out. We'll use that as sort of a jumping off point to get into some uh, different issues here today. Part one by our guest, Nicole Hannah-Jones, focuses on St. Louis. On the failing majority black unaccredited Normandy School District, the district that Michael Brown graduated from just days before being killed by Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson, by all measures the worst school district in the state of Missouri. Uh, Her segment uh, tells the story of what happened when 1,000 of Normandy's students were forcibly integrated out of the failing school and into a neighboring middle-class white school district called Francis Howell, provoking a very angry backlash from white residents who did everything they could to shut the student transfer down. Part two of uh, the This American Life uh, show is a two-episode series, uh, was done by reporter Hannah Jaffe-Walt, focusing on the city of Hartford, Connecticut, which undertook a voluntary integration plan of magnet schools that leaned heavily on, that leans heavily on not forcing, but marketing and selling white people on the idea of integrating schools. Can I? Sorry. Yeah. The Hartford plan is actually court-ordered. Well, it's court-ordered, but it's court-ordered voluntary. It's voluntary for the white people who come in, yes. Yes, it's court-ordered, but voluntary to participate yes. in. That is, that, that is accurate. So one of the things that, uh, that I thought was interesting in the piece, and our glass has up front, he has a, a vague sense of integration going into this. And you cite, you know, you, the word integration is, is used a lot in this piece. It's cited in your segment 21 times. It's in Hannah Jaffe-Walt's segment 39 times. Did you sit there and count? No, I ran a fine change on the uh, on the transcript. I'm not, no, I'm not going to sit there and count. You that anal? I'm not <laughs> so you say, you know, 1998 you cite as the peak of integration in the United States. Over the Normandy plan, you say Missouri accidentally launched a school integration plan. And you conclude the piece by saying where the transfer law forced integration it's working. And so for this word integration that has been used so many times in this piece, what I wondered about is what is the definition of integration? What does the word mean? For, for Raquel and first you, Nicole, what's your definition of integration and what is actually is the government's definition of integration? There's, there isn't really a government definition of integration. So when I'm talking integration, I'm often talking the opposite of segregation. So not necessarily a specific ratio, but the fact that black children are not being isolated and Latino children in completely black and Latino schools. Typically, 
integration is considered a school that is more than 20% white or 20% if, or if it's majority white, more than 20% black or Latino. But often in court cases, it's been an integrated school would be within 20 percentage points of the demographics of a school district. So if a school okay. district is 70%, it could be anywhere from 90 to 50%. Okay. Well, Raquel, so... Nicole and I sort of grew up the mirror image of each other. I was the suburban white school that had black students bust in. You were the black student who was bust in to the white school. But Raquel, you grew up in the middle of New York City. What was your experience growing up and what what's your definition of integration? And I didn't know what the, the as far as integration goes, I don't know what the percentage point is. I never knew that there was a percentage that like has to be a certain amount of percent for it to be considered integrated. When I came back to New York City in 1981 to live with my dad and my stepmom, I started in a parochial school. And that school by, I mean, I just, I always say I was miseducated. I don't even know how I graduated. I, I was just a very disinterested um, student. School didn't work for me. And I also didn't like the way I learned and what I learned and how that, and how for me, education, first at a parochial school, then at a, at, at a public school, kind of, encourage me to really believe that the only people that could build America are white and white men. So I don't like the way I was taught history. Mm -hmm. And I just viscerally, I didn't know how to articulate myself at that age, but it just didn't feel right. So I didn't, I wasn't bus. I took a bus actually from uptown from Inwood to Yonkers, mm. but that wasn't because it was a busing thing. Busing thing. It was because I was paying for, you know, for at that time, a parochial right. school, which was complete and utter bullshit. Right. Which actually brings up, sorry, not to not interject, bad. but no. a, great, a great point Please about interject. the way that we talk about busing when it comes to school integration. It's actually one of my big pet peeves is busing for school integration has been vilified in the, in the popular narrative. But what we always discount is the fact that kids have always rode buses as long as there have been buses. They've rode buses to segregate. What happened in St. Louis was black kids were bused out of white communities into St. Louis, forcibly bused for segregation. But they've also just been bused because school districts tend to be large and kids have to get on buses to go to school. Right. Busing has only become an issue or ever been an issue when it was busing to get kids integration. Right. Um, so anyway, I just appreciate that really? you said that. Yes. It's because not the kids bus, have always it's us. bust. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. that's why that's why right. I rode a bus admit, every I a... day and I rode buses part of a integration right. plan and I rode buses just not. because I had to get to school. I was almost right. intimidated to talk to you two today about busing because I don't understand it, right? Started school in the Dominican Republic and then came here, right? So I just don't understand it because I felt the same mm. way you did. Right. Like, okay, is there some big thing I don't understand? Because I'm not like, you know, I didn't go to great school. But everybody takes a bus. That's right. Right. So it's just it just became a thing. I was in your position of where, you know, I was in a bus school, but I didn't know anything about it because I was the white person who didn't have to pay attention. And, you know, I went back and looked at it. And, you know, you're right. It's all these numerical statistics. It's 20% a ratio of the proportional balance. But... When you really get down to the what does the word integration mean, here's a couple of definitions that I came across that, that I like. This is from Lerone Bennett Jr., editor of Ebony Magazine in the 70s, who actually said quite presciently, uh, one of the greatest enemies of integration in America today is the word integration. Mm -hmm. And he said that integration truly defined is simply human solidarity, the recognition of man by man. Integration is more than being in the presence of, it is being with, and refers not to physical proximity, but to the quality and meaning of the togetherness. Martin Luther King said that integration is the positive acceptance of desegregation and the welcome participation of Negroes in the total range of human activities. Integration is genuine intergroup, interpersonal doing. I think when most people hear that word, 
they impute that it means some kind of, not just an absence of desegregation like you say, but some sort of positive step towards we've healed this, we've fixed something, we've integrated, we're interwoven, that we've taken a step in the right direction. And what I remember, you cite in your your article that according to the statistics and the numerical measures, 1988 was the peak of integration in America. For schools. For schools. And what I remember in 1998 was black people and white people sitting on the opposite sides of the cafeteria. All 99% of the black students tracked into general studies and remedial classes while me and my friends were in AP classes. And I think, you know, to look at the peak of the Reagan-Bush era, the year of Willie Horton as the the pinnacle of anything is, is... somewhat perverse. And so per King and Bennett's definition, does busing produce integration? It produces racial balance. The, the statistics you cite in your study, if you put black students in white schools, test scores get better. So to say school busing achieves better educational outcomes for black children is an accurate thing to say. But does it achieve integration? Well, when I gave the definition of integration, I was talking specifically about schools. I think we're looking at two different things. When you look at 1988, Yes, it was Willie Horton, Ronald Reagan. It was the peak of um, physical integration within schools. It was also the point at which the achievement gap was the narrowest for many students. Mm -hmm. So it may sound perverse, but academically, the achievement gap widened. It's closed some, but that was where, when we had the most integration, where we had the lowest gap in achievement. And you can only imagine if we would have kept going where that achievement gap might be. Also, it should be clear that when I talk about integration, I don't mean within a building. I mean classrooms have to be integrated or it absolutely doesn't work. My high school was tracked. I think every kid who was bused into a white school knows that there's a great deal of tracking going on. The other integration, so as a journalist, I tend to focus on what people who are in positions of power can control. And that's the laws, enforcement versus hardened minds argument. Mm. We can't change. I, I don't, no one in power can necessarily change people's hearts and minds. But what you can ensure is that my child is not getting anything less than anyone else's child because of the color of his or her skin. And to me, the other integration is nice, it's lovely, and if we had more of it, then absolutely people would not suffer as much. We're living outside of that. But the goal is really that people are treated the same under the law and are treated the same by under under policy and are allowed to have access to the things that they want access to. They can live where they want to live. They can send their kids where they want to go to school. If they're the best qualified person for a job, they get that job. It's not to me about, you know, walking in the sunset together, holding hands. Yeah, it's like, you know, I've said this a couple of times before. I don't want to achieve in our, in our society. I don't need for you to love me. I don't even give a shit if you don't like me. But just respect. We have to respect each other. And I feel like right. sometimes, like, for your definitions of integration, we're very, like, lofty and idealistic. But to what, what's brought up in this episode is if white people don't show up, or more to the point, if white people go away, you don't have integration. So at some point, you have to have white people wanting to do it, which means hearts and minds, which means, as, as was illustrated in the second segment of Hartford, Connecticut, it takes forever and it's hard, but they are working on changing hearts and minds and getting white people to come in. If white people leave, you don't have it, right? You're absolutely right. And I think when you look at uh, the quote-unquote failures of integration, it has been segregation does not harm white people. Segregation harms people of color. So how do you convince white people to do something that's really a bonus for them? And I think that has always been the struggle. And that's where the hearts and mind argument comes in. I just don't know 
how well it's worked for us. Once again, you have the hearts and minds, at least allegedly in New York City. You don't have white uh, New York City residents who are saying we don't want to be around black folks. We don't like black folks. But the segregation here is very stark. So changing the hearts and minds alone, I, I don't I don't see how on the ground that has necessarily worked. And what also should be pointed out in the Hartford episode is the reason integration was working in Hartford was because those parents were never being told anything about race at all. Exactly. What they were being sold was a fabulous school. And that is a very different thing than changing how they felt or perceived their kids being in classrooms with black children. That was people who had access to great schools locally, but now had a planetarium if they came into this school. And it was never about them wanting to integrate. Um, and that's very clear in the episode. So that's a very right. different thing. Well, so, it's interesting. Well, about in Kansas City, they did a similar magnet program. They built an educational Disneyland mm-hmm. and it was a debacle because they didn't do the marketing component. They didn't sell white people on it. White people just stayed in the suburbs. It was also a debacle because a federal judge shut it down. I mean, what was a debacle before a federal judge shut it down? I, there were fewer whites in the district after 1.4 billion and 10 years of, of initiatives. More white people had left and more black people had left the district. Right, the but, but it wasn't because of the magnet program. I mean, let, let's be clear. I think, it, one, we've shown once a district reaches a tipping point, there is virtually nothing that can be done to reverse that tipping point. There, are, Unless there's intensive gentrification, which is, has nothing to do with schools, there's almost no point at which once a district becomes a certain amount black and brown that white people come back. And that's whether they stop busing programs, whether they stop integration programs, it doesn't, the tide does not go go backwards. So I think that what happened in Kansas City, you can say it was a debacle, but it's the same thing that happened in districts all over the country with large black and Latino populations, whether they implemented large magnet programs or not. The, the track record is the same no matter if uh, places tried to integrate or if they didn't. Look at Detroit. Detroit never had a busing program. Detroit never had an integration program. Detroit is completely black and urban. But I read in a pro, how do you pronounce pro, pro public? Well, public. I would say publica, but you feel like an asshole saying it that way. But that's the way I would say it because it's Spanish. I don't feel like an asshole. It's Spanish. So pro, pro publica, right? Would be oh, that? saying it that way. I would say publica, and I feel publica, like saying something because I can't pronounce it the random. other way. It's very weird. Yeah, I know. You, you I'm make having it sound kind of nice. Okay, okay. So I read in in, in pro publica. One of the many really wonderful pieces that you contributed to that site, something about St. Louis in 1983. And you talked about how you wrote about how they enacted the largest and most expensive interdistrict desegregation program in the country. And when they surveyed the white students, they said that they benefited. They benefited. They did. They weren't hurt. Nobody was harmed during the process. Scores for black students go up. Right. White students actually benefit. Their parents are the ones that like, like, wow the fuck out. From what I from what I from what I hear. Yeah, I mean I think what's very clear and this is what you hear in the This American Life piece, mostly the only white people who stood up for Normandy's kids were students. Students who were like, Why wouldn't we welcome these kids into our district? Why would they ride a bus for an hour to come here if they didn't want to learn? Um It's the parents because parents are guarding something. They're guarding their property values. They have purposefully picked neighborhoods because neighborhoods reflect a way of life that they want. And I think that that has always been the case. When I was in Tuscaloosa and writing about school resegregation there, I went to the county that was the first. It was the county that ended up, the lawsuit out of that county ended up desegregating the entire state. It was the first time that I heard from white people who had been students in the schools that the governor was shutting down to avoid integration. I'd never heard their stories before. And their lives, like, they suffered for it, too. They obviously didn't suffer the same as black kids who were trying to get an equal education. But 
adults were willing to deprive their own kids of, of their schools and their friends in order to, to avoid integration. So it is a parent thing. The problem is the kids do grow up and oftentimes become their parents. Um, what's also been very interesting is the amount of feedback to the This American Life piece I got from white students who were in integrated schools because of busing or some other desegregation programs. And they said over and over, two things which stand out. One, they were like, it was such a benefit to me to be mm-hmm. in a diverse classroom that we're always talking about this as if black and brown kids are the only ones who get anything out of it, and that's absolutely not true. But also, many of them were bemoaning the fact that their own children were not in integrated schools, which I found to be very interesting, that even though they had this experience and valued it, their own children were experiencing something very different, which we know is happening with black and brown kids, but it's, it's surprising to the degree that it's happening to some white kids. Cycles seem really hard to break, I guess. I mean, we're carrying our parents' baggage. I think the only way to really progress and maybe make integration work is if, like, we let we allow our kids to actually be and live and experience and trust them a little bit, don't you think? Yeah, I think it's hard because we're, we're looking at the solutions as about individual choice. But as we know, race, right, it's, it's embedded, it's systemic, it's structural. And individual choices of parents are not going to change the system. They aren't going to change all of the messages you get about black people and black children. And I don't know how you break that down, considering we only really had one generation of real integration. And then we started backing away. So black Americans are 13% of the population of the United States. And they've always been about that. But we've never had a time in this country where even more than half of black kids have gone to a majority white school. So think about that. Like even at the peak, only half of black kids who are 13% of our nation's population have gone to a majority white school, which should actually be a numeric impossibility. So we've never undone it. Um, There have been some success stories, usually short-lived, but we've never undone it. And you're not going to undo it. You know, we're only 50 years out of legal apartheid. My dad was born into a country where he did not have legal rights in the South. That's my dad, and I'm I'm not even 40 years old. So I think to think that we would have undone all of this with a half-hearted effort over 40, 50 years is ridiculous. Well, that's why that's my problem, and I think, We've talked about this on Twitter, maybe. That's my problem with the word resegregation, is that in order to resegregate, it implies that we had integrated at one point. And we have never stopped being separate and unequal in this country. that's true. To go with, say, the loftier definition of integration, our schools are now more integrated now in the sense that the few black students who got over the fence and who got into these white schools are more likely to participate in student activities, less likely to be tracked, more likely to be integrated into social circles of those majority white schools but they are more racially imbalanced in right. that fewer, you know, most black students or you know, fewer black students are getting access to get over that fence because of real estate and the lack of right. school transfer programs and everything else. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, 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 there's not, it's hard to find a, the right terminology. I mean, in the South, you absolutely can show resegregation. There were school districts where there was almost perfect racial balance. Tuscaloosa was one, um, though even there, there was a lot of tracking within schools. Um, but for most of the country, I think you are absolutely right, and particularly outside of the South. I mean, in the Midwest and the Northeast, these northern industrial cities that were kind of the, the end of the Great Migration, there's never been real integration for the masses. And what we've seen is black middle class, to some degree, have been able to put get their kids into white schools and white neighborhoods. But what's left behind then are schools that are now not only racially segregated, but almost entirely poor. And that's different than what we saw uh, prior to uh, 1954. And I think the, one of the things that stood out to me the most was that New York City 
is the most segregated city when it comes to education in the country. That floored me because I didn't, you know, I didn't expect it to, to, I was expecting like Pittsburgh or something. Sorry, Pittsburgh, don't write me hate mail. (laughs) (laughs) My, My next piece is going to be somewhere in the north for that reason exactly is because like over and over and over when I did the school segregation piece out of Tuscaloosa and even St. Louis because Missouri is kind of southern I mean it was a slave state is is this this very condescending like tisking attitude of of northerners to say look how backwards they are down there and Mm -hmm. then I'd say you realize New York City is the most segregated city in the country at schools. And there would just be this shock and disbelief. It's been like this for years, but the most recent report was last year. Every headline was like, you will never guess what the most segregated school district, where the most segregated school district in the country is. It's not in the South. And my answer is, it hasn't been in the South for a long time. But wow. that shows you how, how racial myth works in this country and who drives the racial narrative of who's good and who's bad. I can't wait yeah. to have you back because I have so many more questions. Yeah, there's, there's far more to discuss, Woo. but we have to, to wrap for you have now. You to boot me out. I yeah. don't have to go home, I but I have to get the hell out of here. I don't want you to go because I have so many questions. <laughs> so if you have questions about this, if you have thoughts on what integration is, what vocabulary we should be using, your experiences oh, yes. of integration uh, versus uh, not, drop us a line, showaboutrace at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. We'll be back in just a moment with Anna Sale from Death, Sex, and Money. Before we move on to the next segment, we wanted to let you know about something that's happening at Slate that our national conversation about conversations about race listeners may be interested in. To wrap up Slate's first ever Slate Academy, The History of American Slavery, Slate's bringing together an esteemed group of thinkers, storytellers, and historians for a lively and candid evening of presentations and conversations about slavery's place in American history and its legacy. This event is happening on September 17th in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit slate.com forward slash academy. I'm excited and happy and in awe and all the great things. I don't even know how else to describe how happy I am that you're sitting next to me, Anna Sale. You have like the, first of all, your podcast, The Sex and Money. That is like the coolest name ever. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And I like that you don't, even though it's very popular and it's very highly ranked in the iTunes universe, you don't shy away from cursing, which is good. Yeah. You see, you keep it like, you keep it real. Yeah. And I like that. That's what I always liked about you. Thank you. Yes, yes. And I, (laughs) and a sale. I haven't gotten that particular like compliment first thing. Like, I like that there's cursing on your podcast. So like, I like it because it's real because you know what it is? Like. I came into the podcasting world a little later because I find that sometimes they're not speaking to me and it just seems to be very clinical and very thought out. And, and I, I like to I want to feel as if I'm sitting down with you next to you and we're part of a conversation. And sometimes when you're excited about something or you want to emphasize something, cursing is apropos. Yeah. And I love the way you started the five part special that Death, Sex and Money with Anna Sale did in New Orleans where you talked to five people that were affected and I'm going to name them. They were uh, Dr. Jeffrey Rouse, Dr. Kierstra, Kurtz Burke, Big Frida, who I love, the Queen of Bounce, mm-hmm. Simone Bruni, the demo diva, who mm-hmm. I just enjoyed meeting through you, and Terry Coleman, who's a teacher. She's a teacher at... Um, at Dillard. At Dillard. Historically Black College. At a historically mm-hmm. black co- college named Dillard. And what I love the most about this is that 
we're approaching, quickly approaching, the 10th anniversary of Katrina. And there are all these really huge, big pieces. The five-year mark, I remember they were very, keep hope alive, let's rebuild. It's like, you know, unity. But now they're like really reflective and I, f- I, f- I feel a different tone in them. And what I love about yours is that it made this big, big, big story. It just broke it down to like the people that lived it. You gave them the mouthpiece, you let them tell their story, and you resisted the binary, which is what I, I just want to give you a hand. Oh. This is amazing. I really, really love this, and I want I, everybody I to, to listen to it. I just want to give you a hand for having the phrase making groceries on your podcast. Twice. That Two is, episodes. Yeah. People said that. That yeah. is a New love Orleansism, <laughs> which should be spread to the whole country, and everyone should use it. Make, I'm glad you noticed that, because I was like, making groceries. Terry says it, and then Big Frida says making groceries. So yeah, for, for yeah. those who don't know... Uh, I, I am from Southern Louisiana. I went to college in New Orleans, uh, so I have a, a, a special place in my heart for the incidents uh, we're going to discuss today. But New Orleans has a very particular dialect. The phrase for going shopping is, I'm going to make some groceries. Mm-hmm. Got to make groceries. That's so cool. Making groceries. And I think everyone should use it. I should use it more. Fresh Direct should adopt it uh, <laughs> as an official slogan. Uh, but yeah, I was glad you used it. Yeah, and, and before, we get, before we talk about the series, I just want to congratulate you. You're making groceries for you and another person, right? Yeah, your husband. You just got married. married. That's so cool. Is it a great experience? It was awesome. But you guys were together for a while, right? Yeah, I've been together for a while. But like, uh, for me, like the next morning, you wake up and you look across and you're like, oh, we're we're like a team in the world. Welcome to the club. We both really love and enjoy being married. So I'm just happy to welcome you. Thank you. Yes. So, New Orleans, 10th anniversary. When you went down there, knowing that one of the things that people are weary of and tired of are reporters, mm-hmm. how were you able to get so deep, delve so deep into the lives of these people who are kind of like, admittedly, they even told you, um, Terry did, at yeah. least, kind of, sh- you know, like, had a, they basically had a wall up that you broke down. How did were yeah. you able to do that? I mean, I think that that's a... The most important thing that I, I learned right off was that uh, there's still so much resentment among people who have lived in New Orleans about the way their city was portrayed and has continued to be portrayed after the storm. Um, but the way we went about it, we just had this sort of hazy idea at first that we wanted to go deep in New Orleans as this 10-year anniversary approached. And we knew, like, we didn't know what the stories were. So... I think we were helped in part by we worked with a reporter on the ground who works for the public radio station in New Orleans named Lane Kaplan-Levinson and asked her to just kind of give us some story ideas. And so through that, we got this sense of the um, take on New Orleans from people who were living in New Orleans. Um, And then I think it was important to include in the story, here's why I'm so pissed off at you and your colleagues as reporters, because I think that says a lot about the kind of the trauma of the storm, I think, was, you know, obviously the way the entire city was just kind of stopped. But then that sense of as you're going through that trauma, being seen as an other and an outsider and not a member of this country, I think that that is, was for, for Terry, like in, an equal trauma um, and something that still uh, motivates a lot of her anger. And the other thing I, that I really loved about your piece is that you didn't use the word refugee once. Terry brought it up. Yeah. I hate that word. Yeah. You can't be a refugee in a place that you were born and grew up in. Um, mm-hmm. To me, that kind of like implies an otherness, like you're, you're you know, them and we're from, you know, we're us. And but you know what's funny? You're not what? 
I was in Lafayette when the storm hit, about two hours really? away from New Orleans. Yeah. And my friends, from my white friends from uptown New Orleans who stayed there after college, they came and stayed with me at my parents' house for in a week, 10 days, however long it was. We called them refugees. They called themselves refugees, and we, we didn't even think about it, right? Um, but obviously, if you're a person of color from the poor side of, of New Orleans, where you have felt dispossessed and marginalized your whole life, you're going to hear that word and hear it a lot differently. That isn't even the worst thing I heard Katrina refugees called. In, in Lafayette, I was, uh, I remember when it was, maybe like a year after the storm, and a lot of black people had relocated to Lafayette, and uh, I was talking to some girl at a bar or something, and she, she referred to them as Mondays. And Mondays? Like, and I was like, Mondays? And she said, yeah, nobody likes Mondays. Whoa. Whoa. So that... Did That's how racial think? slurs work, by the yeah. way. You can like politically correct them out of the vernacular, and like new ones just They'll pop just up. They'll just pop up. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's a moment when I was interviewing Terry. It's not in the piece, the episode where I I said like, "Weren't you taking refuge?" And she's like, "You don't get it." And then like then she sort of explained like, "You're they're not, I, to me that sounds like you're saying I'm not a citizen." Whoa. Well, there seems to be, there was a racial disparity, as you know, the way people saw what went down in New Orleans, the people that were from New Orleans, how they saw it go down, Mm -hmm. right? So most of the people that were black felt like the mismanagement from the government was because of the race of the primary um, victims of Hurricane Katrina, where white people really didn't think that as a whole. And um, do you still find that kind of tension now that it's been like grossly gentrified? Yeah. I mean, I think there's an awareness of race in, in New Orleans and was before and continues to be. And, and New Orleans has changed racially post-Katrina. I mean, there's 100,000 fewer black people in the city now than there was during the 2000 census. Um, and there's also a growing Hispanic community. So so it's um, New Orleans is a different city than it was before the storm. Of the people who I interviewed, the two black people are the ones who stayed in the city during the storm, didn't evacuate. It wasn't so much an, a resource issue as a sense of we've been through this before. We'll get through it again. Um, and the two people being Terry and Big, Big Frida. Frida. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and stayed through. Big Frida had to break through uh, her roof, had a baby in her second floor apartment, went to the Superdome, then was redirected to the convention center, finally ended up in Texas. Terry was on higher ground. She was in a, in a part of the, the neighborhood of Gentilly that didn't flood. And so it wasn't until she was airlifted by helicopter that she saw, in her words, she said it looked out and it looked like the world had died. There was a Brazilian-American uh, woman I interviewed who left and then came back quickly, a white guy who was a psychiatrist who left and then broke back into the city with a Times-Picayune reporter um, to set up a medical clinic during the first days after the storm. But certainly... You know, the experience of the storm is related to access to resources and then your perception of how the media coverage. Kirsta Kurtz-Burke, she's a, a doctor, and she was working at Charity Hospital, which is now closed. Um, and that was the hospital that since, in some form, since the, the 17th century or 18th century had served New Orleans residents. She described seeing that the African-American co-workers that she worked with and the uh, her patients, their absolute lack of trust that they were going to be rescued and her sense of coming from the Midwest as a white woman of course they're coming to get us yes and and seeing that she was wrong and they were right and and how furious that made her I feel like that moment really stood out to me too because she was like she just kind of confronted in the middle of all this chaos her white privilege yeah 
or your favorite uh <laughs> my favorite word your favorite word white privilege no she just it, it it was really something but one thing that i realized that one of one of the things that they all kind of said in different ways is how once you're from new orleans you're always from new orleans no matter what and this whole idea of being touched of not being able after going through that trauma mm-hmm. together regardless of you know race in this in this case in in the case of your five part series um how that experience made them a little touched and also made them like not be able to really exist outside of that environment. Did you find that a lot? Was that something that that was like a narrative thread yeah. in people you interviewed? I mean, it really made me think about, and I I don't think I really got this before, but you know, we thought we were going down. We're like, oh, we'll ask them their storms, people are stor- their storm stories, and then ask what happened in the ten years since. And after those interviews, it was I was very aware of, oh, I am asking you to go to a deeply traumatic moment in your life where not only was there, you know, questions about survival for for maybe not for you, but for people that you loved, but for also where the place that you belonged was, you know, and can considered home was destroyed. Mm -hmm. And so I think that absolutely these episodes together, you get this sense of, yes, New Orleans is a very diverse place, particularly along race and class lines. But this is a collective trauma that this city went through, that the Gulf Coast went through. And um, it's just still 10 years later, like just below the surface, like the storm comes up, Katrina comes up. It's just part, part of conversation. But then when you when I would ask, you know, one or two questions describe that day, like the pace of talking slows down, you know, people's eyes would fill up. It's it's just it's still it's trauma. Mm-hmm. I read an ESPN wonderful story told in five chapters. I'm up to chapter three about it being like people in New Orleans seeing it as being the longest day ever the 10 years so it's like it speaks to your idea of slowing down well the thing about New Orleans you know when I was in college there Oak Street uh, the Maple Leaf Bar on Oak Street was like a you know 20 minute walk from campus and every Tuesday night the Rebirth Brass Band played at, at Maple Leaf on Oak Street and for years after that Whenever I was going down to visit my parents, I'd call up my friend uh, who still lived there, and I'd say, hey, I'm coming to New Orleans. What's going on? And he'd say, Rebirth Maple Leaf on Tuesdays, which was code for New Orleans never changed. It was like dipped in amber, calcified, and it was you go to the same restaurants. They had the same menu. You go to the same bar. Kermit Ruffins was at Vaughn's this night. He was at Donna's that night. It was like a, a play that would act out every week, and then the loop would start over. And it would go through it again. And that's why people, that was the blessing and the curse of it. If you loved that and it was wonderful, you could go there, you could be weird, you could be offbeat, bartend, wait tables, and just be, you know, a free spirit if you wanted to. But at the same time, that calcification and that status quo for low-income black people was terrible. The city was run like a plantation. You had all the white money uptown. You had this large black electorate uh, that had all the voting power. And then you had a very small black really light-skinned, you know, Creole black minority that depended on the black vote for power, but was really beholden to the white money. And that was the city. And it was like that. And it never changed. And why the storm was so traumatic is because it just, the the needle scratched on the record and everything was different. And the interview you did with Terry Coleman, there was a quote I wanted to play, AC, that really gets to the heart of the difficulty of the before and after. Before the storm, we were a poster child of the urban future gone wrong and i'm not saying that like change isn't necessarily a good thing because a lot of the change we had had to be progress we were so messed up like we were so low 
But progress and change comes at a cost. And I think in the narratives of, of progress that are told by outsiders, there's not an appreciation for what we've lost in order to make this progress. You know what I mean? Like, so there used to be this lady who, she moved out last year. She got an apartment uptown, Miss Celeste. And she sold pralines, and she would walk down the street, and she worked at Dillard in the cafeteria, and she lived down on the street, Claremont. And she is like the quintessential example of a dying breed of New Orleans lady. So she's um, she's like mid-tone, like caramel colored. She's really short and like squat, like she's a, like a type. They are like they are like a type of person. Um, but she walks down the street, says, "Hey, baby, hey, how you doing? Hey, how you, mama?" And just goes on and on so loud, like the woman has no inside voice, like. Progress kills that. Like we are, she is the last of a dying breed of person, and we will never get them back. That stuff's erased, and I don't know. I'm not sure if fancy kale and bike lanes are worth that. Even though I love kale and I love bike lanes, I'm not sure if it's worth that. And I'm not comfortable with saying we've made progress without remembering what that was built on top of the reason that yeah. quote hit me is i know exactly that woman she's talking about <laughs> there's just all these new orleans characters who are everywhere all over the city and they make it rich and vibrant and there's this yearning to hold on to or to to go back to this cultural the static cultural status quo that everyone loved and adored but the problem is that cultural status quo was wedded to a socioeconomic status quo that was terrible. And part of the reason New Orleans was so authentic and had so much you know, feeling is that there were a lot of black people with nothing better to do than be authentic for 475 an hour. You know, and oh, she's c- no, but it's true. <laughs> Come on. She's saying this woman's a dying breed. I but mean, part look. of part of the reason why you have a, you have this authentic culture, like marginalized cultures, are more authentic because they have to be right. You have more interaction. You need people more. Like there's nobody out selling pralines on my block because they don't need to because everyone has money. No, and if, no, if, no, if, no, if no. People had more socioeconomic opportunity. No, no, no. Hold on. Okay, okay. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna shut up, even though I vehemently and respectfully disagree with what you're saying. Right, and so. The status quo of New Orleans was stuck in place, and now it's been dislodged. And there's far too many people, like there's this woman in Chicago who said, we need a Katrina, which is just like a horrible thing to say. And there's far too many people saying, well, we need to go back to the status quo. And the fact is, is that things have changed, and the cultural status quo is gone, but the economic, socioeconomic status quo hasn't gotten any better. And I think there's a lot of wanting to hold on to a cultural authenticity that was wedded to a very, like she said, was wedded to a very bad place. I I didn't hear her saying that the, the woman walking down the street selling pralines was doing it out of desperation. I mean, that could be the case. She said she works at Dillard, which is the historically black college, and, and lived down the street and sold pralines. So I don't know what, what it was about her, you know, where she, how she felt about her economic opportunities in New Orleans. I think what Terry is talking about, what I heard her talking about there is just that she's disappeared and she's disappeared because people left New Orleans and didn't well, come back. Well, she said she moved uptown. Oh, she moved uptown. Okay, so that character, that you, sense of that character is, but, is disappearing. So people mm-hmm. left New Orleans. And then the other thing that came up a lot during our conversations is the rising rent and the cost of housing in New Orleans as 
the fancy kale and, and that kind of mm-hmm. that brand of gentrification that we know very well in New York City as that's moving mm-hmm. in, into Louisiana. Um, so I think it's the sense of, of that crowding out other culture. I It resonated with me because I felt like I identified with her. Even though I've, it's a dream of mine, I've always wanted to go to New Orleans. I've actually had a few trips that have gotten canceled at the last minute. But I can identify with her as somebody who's native. I'm like one of the you know few people that I know that are native New Yorkers. And, you know, it's like my neighborhood is the same thing. It's like, you know, I live uptown and we have, you know, Doña Lila and all these other characters that, that were actually selling, you know, dulce de leche or little candies that we used to eat when we were in the Dominican Republic, not out of desperation. They were people that were professional. And when you smell the burning coconut and milk and these kind of like sweets, it kind of brings you back home. It brings you back. I don't know if it's us trying to be authentic because we're a marginalized community. It's just about recreating community wherever you're at. Right. And despite what's going on, despite all odds, because, you know, for example, when I lived, when I grew up uptown in Inwood um, during in the 80s, it was when it was at its most violent. Right. But while I remember the violence, I also have many more memories about you know, dulce de leche, dulce de coco, and speaking and learning about my history and and talking to the older people. And it's not because out of, you know, they moved out of because they can't afford the rent or they've died off or they can't afford. It's not really this need to hold on to something authentic. Terry, what I think is even like commenters on the episode can't are having some yes, difficulty that was my next with question. <laughs> is that Terry is ambivalent. Like she, there's a comment that just came in recently. It's like, well, Terry, I don't get it. Like you, you married a white guy who has a man bun. How can you be yeah. anti hipster gentrification? And yeah. it's like, she's not, she's saying all of these things, you know, New Orleans was, had real troubles before the storm. New Orleans, you know, a lot is being lost. I like fancy kale. None of this, I can't come down on one side or the other about how I feel about where but, we are 10 years later. And that's why I identify with her, because I am that generation. You know, like I, you know, we didn't have a Hurricane Katrina, but I did leave, get educated, come, came back. And I hate myself for, you know, going to Williamsburg to go, you know, and, and, and eat fancy kale or do something. But why like, do you hate yourself for it? Because I'm ambivalent, because I feel like I'm selling right. myself out. I'm ambivalent because I feel like I'm selling myself out and because I don't live. For me, when I think of, I remember when we, one of our first conversations, you may not remember, I remember saying, if I can just raise any community, destroy any community in New York, it would be Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. I was like, so Anna, where do you live? You're like, Williamsburg. <laughs> and I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> but anyway, but it was great because you challenged my perception of Williamsburg saying, you know, I shouldn't look at anybody or any group of people as a monolith myself. I don't want to be seen that way. But also, it's like I was ambivalent because look I love rice and beans I love the culture I love everything but at the same time I like the fancy care like I like taco trucks I like all so it's like that place where you're trying to negotiate limbo negotiate this liminal this identity yeah and 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 not lose yourself but kind of move with the flow but not lose yourself ambivalence is the proper state I don't know why you would say that you hate yourself it's you know, well, I was being facetious. I don't hate myself. Well, right. No, but... Don't worry. <laughs> it's not that bad. I mean, it is... Yes, she's absolutely right. Something is being lost. But you can either sit around and, and lament the thing that's being lost, even though it's already gone, or you could look at it like an act of creative destruction. And, it, you know, I don't agree with these people saying, wow, Katrina, what a great thing. We got rid of so many poor black people. And there's so there are a lot of people who are saying that in so many words. Um, but it happened. and And so I think you have to say, all right, it happened and it happened and we're moving. And I think that there, I think some of the romanticization of pre-Katrina New Orleans having been there, it is it is a romanticization 
Is that the right word? Yeah, romanticization. Yeah. Romanticization <laughs> of something that had, a, like she said, a lot of downsides for a lot of people. Yeah, it was, but it was also home. It was a also lot of home. Yes. homes have a lot of downsides, and that you exactly. still have, you know, that feeling of how could I have lost this place. When you left, what did you come away like? What were you thinking about on the plane about New Orleans? Like, what is what's the what's the overall kind of feeling? Where at the five year mark, at least for press, right, and for yeah. the pieces that were coming out, and even um, our president was talking about hope and rebuilding. And what was the what was what did you go come away with from New Orleans? We've said it a lot, but I that that sense of ambivalence. I think the people I talked to who who were in New Orleans before the storm are there afterwards. They are very committed to the city. No one is planning on leaving, which I was kind of interested by. But but a sense of we're not really sure where this is going. We're not really sure what's going to continue to be lost as there's more economic development. It's creative destruction, but what's the culture that's going to be commodified? You know, who's going to be the winner and loser as as you know New Orleans continues to develop? But I also felt like I want to go back like immediately. It was just. You feel good when you're there. Well, that's the way. It, I mean, that's why yeah. the songs are, do you know what it means to Miss New Orleans? 5% of me every day wishes I was there. Yeah. But every single person I know who stayed there, well, not every single, but most of them ended up waiting tables because there was just nothing to do yeah. before the storm. And just one more thing I would add that I, I think is the the thing that I'm just curious about is just the school system is because that, that says so much about... You know, if you're going to put down roots, if you trust that your city can educate your child, um, if you have the resources to leave the city, do you leave the city? Um, that school system completely rebuilt from top to bottom. A lot of resentment about the middle class black teachers who were fired in the process of the charter school expansion in New Orleans. Um, what's going to happen to that young, ca- you know, c- cadets that came down it's for, through Teach for America and other other programs to teach in New Orleans? Are they going to stay? Howard kids going to be educated in the city as the years continue. Well, thank you for producing that. That was a really, really, really beautiful piece. And I really recommend every one of our listeners check it out. Subscribe to Death, Sex, and Money. I really liked the other recent episode with Kamau Bell that mm-hmm. I really liked a lot. I like it when, you know, you talk, well, basically, what's your slug again? Like, we talk about the things that we think about that we should spend more time talking about. Yeah. I really, really think that you live up to... Um, your mission, oh, your mission statement. And finally today, you'll check this out. So Anna, what did you come across that piqued your interest that you think our listeners should check out? I just finished a book and I'm going to do an interview um, in just a few minutes with Sonia Manzano, Maria from Sesame Street, who's just retired. Oh. Um, and she has a memoir that's just come out. It's called Becoming Maria, Love and Chaos in the South Bronx. Podcast envy. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, but but, oh. but, I read, but the thing about her book that I, like the first several chapters are from the point of view of a little girl growing up in the South Bronx in a household where her dad is an alcoholic who's violent with her mother, violent with her family. Um, and I didn't know how I felt about the book at first because I couldn't understand. I was like, what's really happening? What's the plot and and there's not a lot of reflection about what's happening and then as I read on I realized this is like the point of view of a little girl who doesn't understand who doesn't have a sense of stability in the world and it's just a collection of the details and images and stories and as she's trying to figure out what family is what safety is it's a striking book and then she ends up 
Sonia goes away to studies theater at Carnegie Mellon and very soon, very quickly, is, is cast as Marie on Sesame Street. And her life's work became explaining in the most clear, empathic words possible how to understand the world to little kids. And what's the name of the book again? It's called Becoming Maria by Sonia Manzano. So we'll just um, make sure we put it in our show notes. And thanks so much, so, so much for stopping by. It was so lovely to see me. you. Nice to coming. see you too. Yes. And uh, we hope to have you back. Definitely. Thank you. But I want to know Tanner's recommendation. My recommendation, oh. I have two. Um, one is a book I just finished last week called Ghetto Side by Jill Leovi from, I think I'm pronouncing that right, from the LA Times. Uh, really gets to the heart of something that people don't want to talk about constructively, I should say, the issue of black-on-black crime and how that is related to the over-policing that has caused so much of the protests in the Black Lives Matter movement that you should definitely check out. Totally changed the way I think about everything that's going on with policing and Black Lives Matter right now. The other book that you should definitely read apropos of our second segment is called Rising Tide. It is a history of the 1927 flood that had so many disturbing parallels with Katrina, uh, how the levees were specifically dynamited in uh, the poorer areas to save the rich uh, French Quarter. And it's just a great read of how little things change. Finally, my recommendation came uh, via email from somebody I worked with on my last film called Bling a Planet Rock. She was my production manager, Libby Handros. Well, 25 years ago, she began working on a film in 1988 about Donald Trump that he actually was so angry about that he bullied all the networks into not showing it, and they caved in. She wrote me, Donald was at the top of his game in 1988. We were among the first to wonder, was he really worth as much as he said he was? We found out that he wasn't. That scared him. And his lawyers went to work threatening broadcasters and distributors. They all caved in and no one would touch the film. He effectively suppressed it. This is the same man who is running for president who says he wants to, quote, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, yet he seems not to have read the First Amendment. Thank heavens for the internet. Now we can release the film on our own. So you can watch the film in the trailer and read what people were saying about it back then, the people, the lucky few who got to watch it, at trumpthemovie.com. This is the movie that Donald Trump does not want you to see. And the takeaway is he was an asshole back then. He's a, still a prick today. So, um, but it's, 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 it's really funny. So you should check it out. So show about race co-discussants. Tell us, what have been your experiences with school segregation? How are you feeling about your kids' schools and their racial and ethnic makeup? Shoot us an email or preferably a voice memo at showaboutrace at gmail.com. Also, if you have any memories of Hurricane Katrina that you'd like to share with us, or if you think that, you know, you want to weigh in on how the media is covering it, if you think Tanner was wrong, which I'm sure you do, <laughs> kidding, <laughs> kidding, kidding, there's no tension, it's actually called playful banter, please write us at showaboutrace at gmail.com or please, I, re- I prefer, we prefer, Tanner and I agree on this, we want you to send voice memos. Our producer today is A.C. Valdez, our research assistant, and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com forward slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can follow along the conversation or join it yourself on Facebook or Twitter at showaboutrace.com. 
Or you can send us an email directly at showaboutrace at gmail.com, which is now accepting voice memos. Check back in two weeks for the B-side of today's episode to hear your thoughts on these topics. And that's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. On behalf of Nicole Hannah-Jones and Anna Sale and Tanner and Barra TV Tunde, I'm Raquel Cepeda, and we won't stop until racism is over. 